2: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Shifting the planet to low or no-carbon economies is going to be expensive, but not every intervention is as pricey as the next. We take a look at new ways to think about costs and how policymakers can determine what's best in terms of value for money. And on the island of Zanzibar, off Africa's east coast, the government owns most of the land, but it's citizens that own each and every fruit tree. They're handed down the generations, and keeping track of who owes whom is no easy task. First up though, Rishi Sunak has been Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, its keeper of the national purse strings, for just over a year. And today marks another significant moment in a tenure defined by COVID-19. This afternoon, Mr. Sunak will deliver his 2021 budget, the government's tax and spending plans for a Britain emerging from a pandemic. He'll have to balance protecting jobs and supporting businesses with beginning to repay the eye-watering 271 billion pounds or $380 billion, borrowed by the government over the past year. Ahead of the speech, the Treasury released a highly produced film with an upbeat Mr. Sunak talking over stirring music.
1: I mean, we've had a lot thrown at us this year. Everywhere I go, I just see that spirit of resilience.
2: Mr. Sunak has earned himself a reputation for competence, The dashing and whip-smart 40-year-old is the bookmaker's favourite to be the next Prime Minister. But first he'll have to plot a careful course through the end of the pandemic.
1: The British economy at the moment is about 10% smaller than it was a year ago.
2: Duncan Weldon is our Britain economics editor.
1: Despite that, the overall economic picture, as the Chancellor delivers his statement today, actually looks a bit better than it was. And the main news for that is the good news we've had in recent weeks, in recent months, on the pace of the vaccine rollout. So things are still pretty bad. You know, the economy is 10% smaller than it was. Government debt is much higher. The government's deficit, the amount it's borrowing, is much higher. Consumer spending is depressed. But now we have a roadmap to reopening. Now we have the vaccine rolling out. It looks like the second half of this year, we're going to see a very fast bounce in the economy. And
2: what are we expecting from the budget that, that comes out today? What do we already know?
1: As with any British budget, a lot of the announcements have been well-trailed over the last few weeks. But I think what we're expecting today from Mr Sunak is really a budget in two halves. So for the next few months ahead of the economy really reopening in late June, we're going to see an awful lot of these extraordinary support schemes being extended. So the furlough scheme under which the government pays up to 80% of the wages of furloughed employees will be extended. The grants to small firms will be extended. The subsidised government-backed lending to firms will be extended. So it's going to be quite a generous budget for the next three or four months. But that really is sort of the sugar sweetening some quite bitter medicine. Because the Chancellor is quite worried about the public finances in the long run. And today it seems he's going to be setting out an agenda of tax cuts to try and repair, as he sees it, the public finances. And what it seems like is the two big sources of revenue are going to be tax rises, which the public quite like, increasing corporation tax, or tax rises which the government hopes the public won't really notice as much, so freezing the thresholds at which you pay different rates of income tax.
2: And so do you think then that these more popular or less noticed taxes will fill the hole?
1: How big that hole is depends on two things. Firstly, it depends on the forecasts that we'll get today from the Office for Budget Responsibility, the government's independent fiscal watchdog that does its forecasts. But really, how big the hole is depends on what the Chancellor is trying to achieve. It's very much a define-your-own-hole. So at the moment, you know, government debt to GDP has risen to about 100% of GDP, about just over £2 trillion the national debt now stands at. What is the Chancellor trying to achieve, though? If the chancellor is just trying to stabilise debt at about 100% of GDP, stop it going any higher, but not worrying about reducing it, then the fiscal target he sets himself probably won't require a huge amount of tax rises in addition to what we've already heard about. If, on the other hand, the chancellor wants to go further, if he decides he would rather reduce debt to GDP from 100% to 90% or 80%, then he will probably need to go further either with spending cuts or tax rises. You know, right at the moment, government debt to GDP in Britain is the highest it's been in decades. But, and this is very important, because interest rates are so low, the cost of servicing that debt is the lowest it's been within decades. We've got more debt, but we're paying so little interest on it at the moment that the burden of that debt is very low. Now, what the Treasury are worried about is what happens if interest rates rise. So they're talking about their sort of fiscal repair job almost as a precautionary mitigating against that risk.
2: But this is still a lot of ifs and a lot of dependency on how vaccine rollouts go. At what point in the, in the long run future do we get off this kind of economic war footing?
1: I mean, that's a very good question. If you think about what we've had over the last year in the economy... In some ways, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you order all of the shops and all of the pubs to close, the economy gets smaller. That's pretty obvious. The question becomes what happens when you reopen them? How much lasting structural damage has been done to the economy? And that's a question to which we won't know the answer for at least a few more months. But it's a crucial question, not just for economic growth in the future, but for the health of the public finances. If there's been permanent damage of... 2 or 3% of potential output done to the economy by the last year, then taxes will have to rise just to support the same level of spending we used to have. If, on the other hand, there's been less structural damage done to the economy, then there will be less of a case for aggressive tax rises in the future.
2: And Mr. Sunak is relatively new in the, the job of Chancellor and was relatively inexperienced when he got there. How would you assess his performance during what could be called a challenging year?
1: It's been a challenging year and it's felt like a very long year as well, hasn't it? Mr. Sinek's performance as Chancellor really has came so far in three phases. So in the initial days of the pandemic, he was very, very fast to recognise how serious the crisis was and, you know, putting in place what were quite extraordinary support packages and moving much quicker than the government often does and received an awful lot of praise for that. He had a much more tricky time over the summer and the autumn. He was one of the leading voices in the cabinet, arguing for a faster reopening ahead of what turned into the second wave. And he seemed much more hawkish on this supposed trade-off between the economy and public health. But we're now sort of in the third phase. He is fully behind the prime minister and the health secretary in terms of recognising we need a cautious approach to reopening the economy. Today, he's likely to extend his support, at least until June, July, to allow the economy to reopen only slowly. You know, his place in economic history will really depend on the decisions he makes at this budget and at the next one. On this big divide between should we be withdrawing support now or should we be continuing with support. He may be looked back upon as the person that took the right actions in the crisis and then put the public finances back on a sound footing. Or, I'm afraid, if he gets that judgement call wrong, he may be looked upon as the person which slowed our recovery from this recession.
2: Thanks very much for joining us, Duncan.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Seven in ten full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. One hoped-for bright side of the pandemic was a drop in carbon emissions as economies ground to a halt. Numbers just released by the International Energy Agency suggest that emissions fell by nearly 6% in 2020. The relief will prove short-lived, though. In December, 60 million tons more greenhouse gases were belched out than in the previous December, a rise of 2%. Meanwhile, more and more countries are promising to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So policymakers are going to need to spot ways to get there. But it can be hard for them to know how to get the best bang for taxpayers' bucks.
0: In trendy parts of Berlin, you're seeing more and more cargo bikes, which are normal bikes with a wheelbarrow-sized box attached to the front. And because they're a nice green alternative to driving around, local authorities have decided to uh, subsidize them.
2: Guy Scriven is The Economist's climate risk correspondent.
0: There are lots of advantages to riding around a green bicycle. They have health benefits and they reduce traffic. But if you look at it from a pure carbon perspective, then they're not very cost efficient. How do you mean? For one scheme, for instance, the local authorities spent 370,000 euros, which is about $450,000, implementing a scheme to promote the cargo bikes. But in doing so, they only managed to reduce emissions by about seven tons per year. So if you think about that on a per tonne basis, that works out at about 50,000 euros per tonne another initiative by Berlin's local authorities to support the sale of low-carbon heating systems. The cost of that on a per-ton basis were about €200 per ton compared to the €50,000 per ton. So when thinking about the ways you can reduce carbon emissions, it's useful to think about cost-effectiveness and what the cheapest way is to do so.
2: But how to do that across a great many technologies and platforms and ideas, What's the accounting look like?
0: The simplest way to do it and the way that economists favour is to impose a price on carbon. And you can either do this by a straight tax on carbon, or you can do this by a cap and trade scheme. So that's the kind of scheme you have in Europe right now, where permits are auctioned and traded across lots of different big companies that emit lots of carbon dioxide. And that creates a price on carbon as well. Both these techniques would encourage consumers and firms to find the cheapest ways to abate. And when I say abatement, I just mean the kind of process of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But they're quite difficult to enact politically. Only about a fifth of the world's greenhouse gas emissions are covered by an explicit carbon price. So you kind of need other tools. And one tool which has been suggested recently by Bill Gates, the billionaire philanthropist, is to think about what he calls a green premium.
2: And what is that?
0: So that's essentially the price difference between a current technology and a zero carbon technology among the kind of many economic activities he looks at he looks at the cost of jet fuel jet fuel costs around two dollars twenty per gallon and biofuel alternatives cost about five dollars thirty five per gallon so in that example the green premium is about three dollars fifteen per gallon that may not sound like very much But if you think that very roughly a jumbo jet will use about a gallon of fuel a second, that obviously adds up very quickly. The reason we care about these price differences is because in instances where you have a very small price differences, there's basically very little reason for consumers not to go with the low carbon option. In those sectors and bits of the economy, it's going to be relatively easy to decarbonize. But Where you have a very big green premium, then those areas, Gates argues, you should focus more on innovation and introduce regulation to try to level the playing field. This approach is just the latest in a long list of ideas of different ways to attempt to calculate the costs of climate intervention. One favoured method are marginal abatement costs, essentially quite similar to the green premium, but they also take into account potential impact of abatement.
2: So with these varying approaches, then, I mean, how does that translate into policy? How do you turn these numbers into the kind of change that you're talking about?
0: Once you've done these calculations, what's quite useful to do is to take all the interventions that you possibly could roll out and to chart them on what's called the marginal abatement cost curve. These then show all the possible ways you could decarbonize from cheapest to most expensive and also how much actual abatement each one of those options gives you. For example, if you think about switching all the coal-fired power stations in the Asia region to gas, that gets you quite a lot of abatement at quite a cheap cost. By comparison, if you were to try to decarbonise all steel mills in the world. I mean, that would also get you a fair chunk of abatement, but that would be far, far more expensive. And so these curves are useful to compare the different impacts and the different costs of all the various climate interventions.
2: What are some general features of these curves of looking at these trade-offs in this way?
0: Where you tend to get most bang for your buck is in making buildings more energy efficient. That might be by installing smart heating and cooling systems or insulation. If you take all the costs and benefits associated with doing something like this, you'll actually get a negative cost. So in the end, that will save consumers money through cheaper power bills. The next cheapest set of options tends to be switching sources of power to renewables. So the price of renewables has plummeted in the last decade. And then after that, there's basically kind of less agreement about what the next best options are. But there's more agreement about what the most expensive areas of the economy are to decarbonise. So they tend to be bits of transport, particularly ships and planes, bits of heavy industry, so steel and cement, and also agriculture, so cows that belch methane. For all those options, there really aren't clean, cheap, scalable alternatives.
2: And so I guess it's those high gain, high cost interventions where the innovation really could come in. This is the chart that every green-minded person and policymaker should have.
0: The theory works really well, but in reality, the maths is really, really hard to do. There's a lot of variation in different countries as to how cheap and effective renewables could be. Another difficulty is that prices are changing for a lot of green technologies really, really quickly. So the price of solar panels has come down by around 80% in the last decade. That means that these calculations get out of date very quickly. Part of the problem is that the economic models designed to look into this don't take into account the feedback loops from more deployment of renewables, which leads to lower prices, which then in turn leads to more deployment of renewables. That's very hard to model for forecasters. It means that the cost estimates of these abatement cost codes can be way off quite quickly.
2: Even with all of those uncertainties, you reckon this is still a useful tool for counting the costs?
0: Yeah, I think it is useful because it gives politicians and others a simple way of thinking about and comparing the costs of decarbonisation. simplification also has dangers. These costs are constantly moving and big gaps and variations in our understanding and estimates. But it is really important that we start to grapple with these costs because climate change is only going to get more urgent. And a lot of governments have severe cost constraints, particularly after the COVID-19 pandemic. And so this is something we need to think really seriously about.
2: Thanks very much for joining us, Guy. Thanks, Jason. Off the coast of Tanzania, the island of Zanzibar has more than four million coconut trees. And each and every one of them has an owner. Land is hard to come by, but fruit trees are handed down the generations. So some withered mango tree by the side of a Zanzibari road could be a family heirloom.
3: Historically, coconut trees were very important for people in Zanzibar. They not only provided sustenance, the leaves also provided roofs for houses. People produced coconut oil and continue to produce coconut oil. And so coconut trees are valuable and worth having.
2: Olivia Ackland writes about Africa for The Economist.
3: Land itself is owned by the government, so all land is public. But fruit trees can be bought and sold, and they can be passed on for countless generations.
2: So how, how exactly does that work out in practice then?
3: So local officials with knowledge of the area manage the system. And so I met Vilay Farahani, who was a local chief known as a shiha. And it's his responsibility to remember who owns every single coconut tree in and around his village. Cool. <laughs> and so I stood with Vilay Farahani outside his house and I pointed to these A swaying palm trees in the distance. And I said, who owns that one? And he had an encyclopedic knowledge, so he'd point to a tree and say, for example, that one belongs to Hashimi Bishamba. And that one over there belongs to Hasimi Makami. To yeah. Yeah. Makami. Yeah. And he gave the names of every single owner of every single coconut tree that we could see. His uh, his role as a a one man tree historian is especially tested when someone wants to lease the land.
2: So how does it work then? If the government owns the land, someone wants to to lease the land, but then has to deal with these trees that belong to someone else.
3: So you can lease the land for up to 99 years in Zanzibar. So it's relatively easy to acquire a beachside plot of land and even a permit to build on it. But it might take years to identify the owner of every single fruit tree or coconut tree that sprites on the land and pay them off.
2: And so that results then in a lot of deal-making between the owners of the trees and whoever has has possession of the land.
3: Yes, and it's a process fraught with complications. Um, So Joyce Nyambara Boswell uh, is a Kenyan lady who owns a hotel in the north of the island. And when she first came to Zanzibar, this whole concept of tree owners and landowners was completely new to her. And so uh, it was a revelation that we couldn't just say, "Okay, here's the amount of money. So when she understood that she had to buy the trees and the land separately, she spoke to the shiha and hoped that he would be able to pay each owner of each tree. But then the dispute started. And so people would turn up and say that you'd given money to the wrong person and actually this tree, my father left it, to me but my brother's claiming it's his this did not end there because even after paying it for the second time there might be that third person who comes and say no 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 it did not belong to those two guys It belongs to me and so it went on honestly for almost three years luckily the trees at the time were quite cheap and went for around 30 a piece but in the last 15 years land prices in zanzibar have rocketed and so have the cost of trees
2: so how much is a coconut tree worth now
3: so, nowadays, a coconut tree on Zanzibar's most desirable stretch of land could go for up to $2,000. And so, for example, on Joyce's plot of land, there were 50 trees. So, this is getting pretty expensive.
2: And, and what does that shift in tree trading mean for the future of the island, do you think?
3: So, it might not be an entirely bad thing. Resorts are springing up across Zanzibar's white sand beaches to cater for an ever-growing number of tourists. Lots of them are from Russia. And some of these developments risk ruining the coastline. So the added complication of having to buy land and trees separately might hinder some more hasty developments, which I think is no bad thing. Also, locals, a lot of whom are very poor, can make great profits off their ransom trees. Islanders are bound to get much richer selling trees to hoteliers than they are by flogging a few coconuts on the beach to tourists.
2: Thanks very much for joining us, Olivia.
3: Thanks very much, Jason.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.